Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. We talk about the business of sports and law and finance and media, technology, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, welcome back. Joe, how long has it been since we've done a podcast together? It seems like about three years. It seems like about three years and, and lots of isolations ago, I guess. So. Yeah, no, it's been it's been weird. I'm I'm really glad we're getting back into the rhythm doing this. Uh, there's so much to talk about, um, and I'm really glad that we have the guests we have today to break down one or two of the key issues in the business during this lockdown and, as Jeff Volk would say, sport hiatus. Yeah. So, so why don't you why don't you tee it up? Yep. So for for those just listening, we're recording this on Cinco de Mayo, 2020. Um, in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown. Um, and we're going to talk about some of those issues which had not been in place on March 12th, I don't think, for the most part. Uh, and our guest is our legal expert, I guess, a longtime professor at Columbia in our program, UFC aficionado, Carla Variala. <laughs> Carla, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Nice to be with you all again. And, and just for clarity, Tom Cerny is somewhere on the wilds of, where are you, Long Island, Tom? He's nodding, yep, yes. I'm, I'm Tom's Island. in Connecticut. Tom Richardson's in Connecticut. I'm in New Jersey, and Carla's in California. Wow, very That's impressive. Right. It's amazing what this technology can do. Yeah. So what are we starting with, Joe? Are we going to get into my favorite topic, force majeure? Yeah, we, we should definitely start with. And or NIL? Yeah, so why don't we, um, let's start, you know what, let's start with NIL. So um, one of the things that has been active, very active as games are not being played, is the ongoing question of name, image, and likeness amongst NCAA players, uh, NCAA athletes. As we sit here today, um, one state has approved, Florida is close to approving, and could be the first state where this could happen. Um, But Carla, you want to talk a little bit about the the legal issues, the opportunity, and the point of view on NIL that you're seeing? Yeah, and, and well, Carla, the follow-up, I'm sorry, the follow-up questions that, if you don't mind, just to get this going in your mind while you're answering the first part is, will this change things? Will this accelerate things? Will this complicate matters? Meaning this downturn in sports, the, the lost revenue, all the issues associated with, with um, this hiatus. Okay, well, in order to address some of the questions, to talk to you about what's going to happen with COVID, whether it's collegiate sports, professional sports, et cetera, I mean, it's, it's anybody's guess. I think we're all sort of charting a course as we go forward, but not necessarily knowing what that looks like when we get to the end of it. Um, so I think that their obstacles sometimes present opportunities. So I, I'm thinking of COVID as an opportunity to think about fine tuning how businesses and that includes sports are run, uh, whether it's at the recreational level, amateur level or professional level. So I, I wish I had a more definitive answer for you. I feel like we're all sort of scrambling for certainty and reassurance about what it's going to look like on the other side. Um, but some of, you know, obviously how we interact with spectators, uh, cleaning protocols and sterilization protocols uh, and getting that ramped up. 
security protocols, enforcing uh, social distancing, um, ensuring that people aren't entering mass gatherings when they have a temperature or signs of the virus. I mean, there's so many interesting legal uh, civil liberty issues, practical issues. I mean, we could do a podcast, gentlemen, on that topic alone. For sure. Carla, the, the, um, board, the recommendations that were issued by the NCAA Board of Governors, was that about two yeah. weeks ago? April 17th yeah. mentions yeah. the pandemic. Can you just, uh, yeah. for, for those of us who are not legal experts, give us the, the Cliff's Notes version of what was in that document? It's pretty long. I, I actually did a little uh, control command F search to look up all the references to media and digital, which I'll come back to in a second, but give yeah. us the top line on that. Give us the top line on that. Well, there's a lot to unpack in the April 19th uh, report and recommendations that were issued to the NCAA. Um, I think that for me, when I read it, and I'm going to hold it up for you so you can see, you know I love my highlighting, <laughs> I made notes in the margins. There are all these terms like guardrails. The report talks about a need for modernization yes. in light of social media and the digital landscape changing. The need to give student athletes the same rights as other college students might have. But when I wrote, went through this and made my notes, a few of my key takeaways are and Come on, NCAA, there's, there's got to be more here. Uh, the phrases, guardrails, modernization, who's going to be in charge of enforcing these so-called guardrails is left open and vague. And when I put down this document, I came away with the feeling that this was a bit of a Trojan horse for the NCAA to seek an antitrust exemption. I didn't wow. come away from this document feeling strongly that it was advocating for student athlete rights. I came away from this seeing or feeling that this was an opportunity that the NCAA wanted to use to continue lobbying efforts in order to obtain a valuable antitrust exemption created by Congress. Wow. That's a, that's a big statement. Yeah. Do, do your I, I, colleagues in the business agree with you on that? I mean, is that seems to be kind of the vibe out there? I think some may. Uh, the other side of this is, of course, that it is a practical recognition. And some states, as we mentioned earlier, like California and Colorado, have already state, taken baby steps with giving athletes, uh, student athletes, uh, name, image, and likeness recognition. I would agree with this report that there is a need for modernization. And Tom, I really look forward to hearing what your thoughts are on digital. But when I thought or read about um, the discussion of social media influencers that mm -hmm. is in here, and the example about, you know, student athletes should have the rights as other college athletes. So if somebody is, let's say, a fashionable, uh, college student who has a nice following on Instagram, on TikTok, et cetera, and they are thought of as an influencer, they can partner with brands and sell things. 
And I don't know if that's the example that the NCAA report was making, but the flaw with that logic is those students are not necessarily making a ton of money for the schools and right. boosting the school's image. It's something purely that is a creation of that student's creativity and business acumen. Um, but the student athletes don't have the same rights even under this report. I was just impressed. Like I, I yeah. was just impressed they used the phrase influencer marketing in the report. Like <laughs> they, they got the, the intern to say, um, we should probably do something about influencer marketing. But, but correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, I don't know if you had a chance to review the document, uh, but I, I, I actually read part of it, especially the parts about media, to Carla's point. Carla, am I, the, the, the way it struck me, it was, it was like written by some anthropologists thinking yeah. about what's going on <laughs> in media right now. Just, it was just so almost quasi-academic. You know, there's this thing called yeah. social media and people share their opinions and get sometimes paid if they're able to build audiences. It was really almost yeah. comical. Um, and I'm reading this going, wow, this is not exactly um, going to set the world on fire in terms of uh, a vision or a strategy as to your point about where this actually goes. They basically just reiterated factual things that you could have read about five years ago, at least in the realm of digital and social media. Yep. I mean, there was Everybody nothing I really helpful in it. Yeah, everybody I talked to in the space basically agreed that if the NCA would have done nothing, it would have probably been better than doing what they did because all it did was re-clarify re what we already knew and didn't answer any of the questions. It said that, yes, we're looking at this, but it doesn't mean that, yes, we're going to get closer to an answer. Uh, and I think, I think you're going to see those answers or at least more challenges come to light as more states approve this. The first of which now is looks like if it gets approved by the governor could be Florida next year. And one of the things that was pointed out is if Florida moves ahead of the other two states, Colorado and, and California, and enacts this right away, it becomes a tremendous recruiting advantage for any school in the state of Florida against other schools. Because you can say, hey, you want to come here and make money off your name and play basketball at the University of Florida or Central Florida or play volleyball at South Florida, you can come here versus going to Tennessee or Georgia or Alabama because it's legal in my state. It really creates a tremendous recruiting advantage. Some people have said an unfair recruiting advantage for schools in the state of Florida or if it follows in California and Colorado that, that the other 47 states do not have and won't have for some time. And, and Carla, I guess on top of that question is we are talking about just like legalized sports gambling, we're talking about state by state for the near future. There's no federal legislation and discussion, right? No. Right. So this is no, going to be just, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but is it? Yeah. But I mean, no time soon, especially now. Yeah. I mean, so again, I don't think you need to be a, an attorney to, to start thinking that this is just going to be a mess. Is that fair to say? Well, I mean, that's, again, federal legislation may be required. I think we talked about this when we talked about uh, sports gambling as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that a patchwork was not necessarily desirable. But if the states, you know, sort of bootstrap off of each other, 
uh, and they're not radical variations in what sorts of rights and abilities there are, then, you know, maybe that won't be, listen, we don't have a federalized system for everything. Right. Um, so perhaps this will, will work and state law claims, uh, you know, name, image and likeness uh, cases are generally state law claims anyway. But, but do you agree with Joe's statement that this would provide pretty major advantages to the schools that are in those states where it's legal? Potentially, potentially. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, and, and you know, the, the report doesn't really discuss that concern so much. They do talk about a fear of, of boosters and pay for play and people being uh, compensated like through that, that means, but they don't talk about the fact that in a true open market, whether states would be able to compete and some states would naturally be more competitive than others. The anthropological document did not go far enough. What comes in the aftermath of that document being released? The divisions in schools then now have to start thinking this through? Yes, that's exactly what they said. And they gave, I think, in the first, within the first couple of pages, uh, they talk about sending it to, uh, dispersing it, and having the, the membership sign on to it. And they give it, I believe they gave a timeline or a suggested timeline uh, within the next several months. I think that's within the first couple of pages of the report, if memory serves me correctly. Right. So they're looking to move things. Um, they said that the working group's time frame should be extended and that uh, they're going to work with membership and divisional and legislative groups. So that's Carla, sort of the time frame that's there. The, one of the lines that made me, that made me smile regarding the, the anthropological reference was, uh, let's see what section it's in. It's um, section four, paragraph two, digital content creation distribution. This was the line. I love this. The other significant new area of commercial opportunities for students and student athletes is creating and sharing digital content, podcasts, videos, yeah. streams of video game sessions, and the like. There's been a revolution in this area over the last decade with the barrier to entry lowered dramatically in terms of content creation, distribution, and monetization. Virtually anyone with a smartphone or a modern computer can record a podcast or a video or capture themselves playing a video game. <laughs> it goes on from there. Oh boy, that's too funny. Yeah, witness <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> so, I mean, you're, you're looking at this sclerotic old institution coming head to head with extremely complex fast moving business of digital and tech. And it just seems like it's going to be hard to, to suss this out in terms of how it yeah. all gets kind of uh, managed and regulated by them. Uh, it just seems like it's going to be really hard. Well, you know, I had a question for you. What are some of the opportunities in the digital social marketing space for the athletes to market him or herself that doesn't run afoul of any of these guardrails about having it be connected to uh, something they're not entitled to make money off of, which is one of my favorite lines in the report, that student athletes, there needs to be a guardrail that student, and it's right at page two, are not to be compensated for uses of their NIL in situations where they have no legal right to demand such compensation. 
So what avenues does that leave open for them? Well, I mean, if they're, they talked about the notion of micro-influencers too, which is just a variation yeah. of influencer marketing where you're talking about people that aren't like uh, uh, Kylie, Kendall or Kylie or Snoop Dogg or something, something like that, meaning they may have hundreds or low thousands of followers, but they have a disproportionate amount of influence as in their particular uh, environments that, that they may be hanging out in. So could at a college volleyball player, using Joe's example in Florida, a, a young woman who happens to be really good on Instagram at doing, I don't know, random videos about fashion, and she develops a following of 25,000, could she be hired by a, a cosmetics company? That's the way it works. Right. Well, That has right. nothing to do with her volleyball playing at Florida, right. at Southern Florida, but I don't know, would that right. count? You know, if you're supporting a cause or if you're creating a t-shirt yeah. for your team, yeah. you can control. And, right. you know, the perfect example, there were a couple of examples this year. One of the biggest ones was uh, the kid who made the shot from Stephen F. Austin who beat Duke. Uh, and it came yeah. up that he was from the Bahamas and they needed to raise money for his family who had lost everything in the hurricane last summer. But he could not do that. Now, if NIL was in place, he could have created a whole campaign that could have raised money for a cause that he would have been able to, to deal with. And he wasn't able to do that because of the rules that are in place now. That's happened time and time again. You know, it happened, um, you know, several times this year, and I think it will continue to come up. And the crazy thing is, as, as Carla pointed out at the beginning, is the only people who are on campus who are affected by this are if you happen to play a sport. If you were a cellist or a chess player or a theater major, none of this right. applies. It only applies because you play a sport. Right. Does the, NIL, does the NIL compensation have to be related to that, this, the activity of the sport itself? So like no. my example of, no. of, the, of, the influ, of the micro influencer who does beauty stuff, but she's a volleyball player? That would well, be if, you're okay, accept, if, if you're accepting money right. for a scholarship, you cannot do anything. You can't get a job right now. That's the way it stands. So, so you, you cannot do anything because it's deemed an unfair advantage if you're an NCAA athlete. If you're um, a soprano, it doesn't affect you. It only affects athletes on campus that cannot do anything. So because she happens to be a volleyball player, no, she cannot accept money in well, anything. I just found that, so Carla, you read the section about waiver requests? Yeah. And they used a bunch of examples. Here's, and, and I forgot about this, Joe. This kind of yeah. addresses the question. A field hockey student athlete was the host of a profitable video series, a vlog, about cooking and nutrition on an online video streaming service. The student athlete was paid based on online ad revenue consistent with other vloggers with similar size audiences. The student athlete was a nutrition major seeking to become a professional chef. And that was a, a waiver request for this. Right. And if I read the document correctly, the document is saying, well, in those situations, it shouldn't, they shouldn't need a waiver. Let's modernize this. No need for a waiver. But right. I do not believe that same athlete would be able to go out and endorse a volleyball or sell her likeness on a t-shirt and make money off of it. Right. And, and, and Tom, I'll give you one more example and then we should move on to force majeure. Football player at the University of Colorado who became uh, an Olympic skier 
And when he won a medal, and I, I'll think of his name in a minute, his sister is actually a poker player. Um, they made a film about her. Um, Jeremy Bloom, that's who it was. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. So Jeremy, Molly Bloom is his sister. So, All right. so Jeremy movie, Bloom Molly's game. played right. football at the University of Colorado, was declared ineligible because he was an Olympic skier, even though he did not ski for the Colorado's team, won a medal and accepted money because he was an Olympic skier. Did not, and so he was declared ineligible to play football at Colorado for, for something that was not offered at the school. And he, by yeah. the way, he fought oh, it. Anyway. Before, okay. so, before we go on to your sports majeure, one of my other favorite topics, I just want to make a suggestion for our podcast audience. Keep your eye on the money with this development. And to me, the amount of money that an antitrust exemption is worth to uh, the NCAA, it far eclipses what we're talking about in name, image, and likeness uh, uh, issues that they may, they may give up. It's, it's, to me, something that they seem to be actively lobbying for through this document, as well as in real life. I think it's something to keep an eye on. Antitrust litigation is notoriously expensive, complex, and unpredictable with its outcome. So it could be very valuable to the NCAA. Wow. Okay, so moving on to force measure. Carla, we are seeing unprecedented issues arise around the, the lockdown and the closure of sports. And there's a lot of talk about what's happening with these contracts, with these agreements that are essentially yeah. adversely affecting all parties in almost all situations. So whether it's the, the media value chain from, uh, from the telcos and MSOs to the networks, to the leagues, to the players associations, um, to canceled events and with venues and things like that, force majeure gets mentioned a lot. Can you just break that down just to start this part of the conversation? What we're okay. really talking about? Sure, force majeure, like lawyers always have fancy words for simple concepts. Force majeure literally means superior force. Um, I think it's in French. And what it simply means is that there is a, an event or a happening that was unforeseeable that could not be overcome and made the agreed upon activity impossible, not impractical. It cannot be a matter of, well, it's going to be so much more now for me to effectuate the aim of this uh, contract. It has to become impossible. And it's usually an act of, you know, I, we use the phrase act of God, a hurricane, um, an earthquake, uh, it might be some, a natural disaster like that. And some force majeure clauses specify things like, you know, government stoppage. Um, uh, they may reference pandemic, although that has not been a common term in any force majeure clause I've looked at. Um, it is not something that is found in case law. And by that, I mean, it is not in the common law. It is a creature of contract. If it is not in the contract, you cannot argue, this is a force majeure event and I cannot hold up my end of the bargain. Mm -hmm. um, it is a creature of contract. And therefore, the way that the language is structured is incredibly important. So all those lawyers who do contracts and contract drafting are now 
uh, worth their weight in salt if they've put a strong force majeure clause in that protects their client. And I think I've said this to all of you before, typically it's not a clause that people get very exercised about. It's often a very boilerplate clause. Mm -hmm. But we are now seeing that the importance of even the plain vanilla clause and making sure that it is well drafted and broad enough to cover an array of events, not just, you know, if an earthquake hits New Jersey, Joe cannot fulfill his end of the contract. He has been felled by a superior force. But it's a, so that's the background. Wouldn't it happen that if there's a series of force majeures clauses in all these different contracts and let's call it the sports ecosystem, you could kick the force measure clause down the road? So if I'm a customer of Comcast and I'm not getting ESPN, I say, I want to be refunded $8 per month because I'm not getting my programming that I'm paying for. And ESPN calls the NBA and MLB and says, I want to be refunded for the rights I paid you. And they call their players association and say, we need to reduce salaries because I can't pay ESPN, which can't pay. Am I missing something? Like, who, where, does, where, does the, where does it end? You know, how do, how do you... How do you address that? Well, I mean, with a force majeure clause, it literally begins and ends with that contract. Whether it may have repercussions down the road, but in order to enforce that sort of language, if you wanted to go to court or arbitration and enforce it, you had best have the clause and a good one to start off with. The other stuff you're talking about is almost what I would call in the spirit of cooperation or keeping the ecosystem alive, working together to deal with an impossible event. But that's a little different than trying yeah. to enforce a force majeure. Have you heard of any examples in the industry so far where it's gotten a little bit ugly or unpleasant vis-a-vis -vis force majeure or any specific clauses that might make one party very angry? <laughs> that might make one party very angry. Uh, yes, but angry enough to sue, to litigate, particularly now when, as you know, most courts are under lockdown except for essential matters, which this would not be deemed an essential matter. You're not about to go into court and get a TRO uh, with regard to performance on a contract unless it's to deliver respirators or something like that right now. Right. Um, would people choose to litigate over this? Plus, I think that there is a feeling of goodwill and we're all in this together and people are trying to collaborate and problem solve before they're in a hurry to sue. Enjoy so, so Carl, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead, Joe. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've heard, and I thought maybe it was you who brought this up, is the fact that a lot of these events have been canceled, not because of natural causes, but because of the fact that the state wouldn't let them happen. Uh, and someone had mentioned to me that that automatically eliminates anything in force majeure anyway, because it's not, it, it, it doesn't apply. Is that correct? And, and how would somebody- It depends, on the, it depends on the clause. It depends on the clause and like, you know, uh, an insurrection, an act of war, a governmental order. The that may- yeah, that may trigger, like, you know, for anybody that um, 
may have like, let's say business interruption or event cancellation insurance, that may be another avenue for them. But for the clause, I want to be crystal clear. It depends on the clause and how it is written itself. It goes back to the, the art of drafting a contract. So Carla, what big issues may come out, big legal issues may come out of this sports closure? Like what, it's not, it's not going to be all uh, peace, love, and happiness. We know that. Like there's going to be issues. Yeah. Which, yeah. Where do you think, where do, what, what part of the business might it get most contentious in? Well, this doesn't sound terribly sexy to you, but I think you are going to see a significant amount of insurance coverage disputes, whether people had business interruption, whether it was excluded, whether they have sufficient coverage to cover lost profits or the loss of in a, a concert, an event, etc. I see that easily because people are fast to sue insurance companies versus a business partner. So I see that as an area of litigation that will get ramped up. I know I have several colleagues um, in the insurance coverage world that are talking about that already. Um, you know, I, I have been following some of the ticket refund. Uh, is an event postponed or is it canceled? Uh, so that a refund is, is warranted. We've already seen those types of cases making their way into the courts in their class action suits. It'll be interesting to see what happens with those. Um, you know, that has not just been with MLB and the MLB teams, but some of the uh, ticketing agencies and ticketing resale sites have been hit with those suits as well. So that's, you know, no peace, love and understanding there. Uh, that's already ramped up. I could easily see the next wave being insurance coverage contesting whether business interruption or event cancellation insurance should have provided some relief and yet was disclaimed for. Um, and the rest of it, whether people are seeking to enforce sponsorship or other contracts, I think wait, wait and see, wait and see. Wasn't there one um, case with Wimbledon where they actually yeah. had pandemic insurance. And yeah. someone said yeah. they, they had the choice of picking between pandemic insurance and the death of a monarch. And right. I think they went in the way of the pandemic insurance and actually ended up probably saving them money. I don't know how many other places have pandemic insurance. Yes, they actually, they actually had a, a very effective recovery based on what I read. Um, I hope that they sent their insurance broker and their in-house counsel flowers. <laughs> and the queen for staying alive. I mean, that's probably another big thing. And the queen. Yeah, so. Hey, Joe, have you heard yeah. any about any funky legal issues in your travels in the last few weeks? Uh, there have been lots of questions about, you know, things like player injury and how is that going to factor in? And, you know, people have talked about it. Again, we're sitting here on, on May 5th, not knowing whether baseball is coming back, but... You know, how does that affect competitive balance? And then how does that factor into gambling? Yes. And, and how, you know, are people going to sue over, over gambling? Are people going to sue over, you know, other things that we haven't even thought of yet? You know, handicap accessibility has come up. Um, you yes. know, who gets tickets and who doesn't? 
I think one of the big ones, and that was one of the things I think, Carla, with the Olympics was, was it a postponement or a cancellation? And, and the IOC only had insurance for postponement, not for cancellation. So that's why right. it was always termed a postponement, not a cancellation. Interesting. Right, right. It was the same thing with some of the ticketing litigation. They called it a postponement. The concert, et cetera, had not been canceled. It was just postponed. And I think that is something that is brought up in the class action suit against MLB, the teams, and the ticketing uh, defendants saying, you know, you can't have a season. It's so it can't be postponed. This game against the Florida Marlins can't be postponed. It's canceled. And I think that MLB has and, and the teams have probably got a ready response to that. They may play in a bridge season. Hey, guys, with the growing pressure on all state governments, financial pressure, will this accelerate the, the adoption of legalized sports gambling by more states? And is that, and, and Carla, from a practical standpoint of moving through the system, it, it, will it could it happen faster? I don't think it'll move faster. My, my sense is that things are just way too tied up legislatively and certainly in the courts right now. I, I, th I think for those in the gambling space or who were on the fringe of the gambling space, not the bigger players, it actually moves it down the legislative uh, list in terms of not being as big a priority. Because when you think about the simple things that now are gonna have to be addressed, education, <laughs> the presidential election, um, you know, yeah. all different kinds of things. I think sports gambling suddenly slides again back. Uh, and, you know, again, that's another recoverable asset that, you know, how will, um, you know, the, the major gambling companies, you look at MGM, you know, they'll never be able to recover that lost money because it's not like people can rebet again. And then I'll tell you one other example, Tom, is in a perfect world, um, our, our good friend Ezra Kuchar has mentioned this to me with regard to DraftKings. In a perfect world, if everything comes back in September with all these mega events, the, the consumer will have less money to gamble and more things to pick, up, pick for. So actually, some gambling companies could actually make less money even though there's probably a more robust menu and maybe more people are interested in it than they would if it was just normal, normal course of business. Nobody really knows right now, to tell you the truth, obviously. Yeah, Joe, I guess on your point about the, the, the other pressures that the states have, but in, in terms of looking at new revenue opportunities, there's two areas in, in statewide government that everybody understands to be relatively easy money, kind of found money, assuming you can work through the legislative process, and that is uh, legalized sports gambling and cannabis legalization. Yep. I mean, you're seeing it one by one by one. It just seems to me that if I were a state legislator, uh, a leader of a state, with the severe financial pressures that are mounting as we speak, um, if I could fit it into the docket, I would press my governor for more rapid consideration and potential adoption of both those because I'm not sure where this money is going to come from. I don't want to make this too political, but it's not like there's a lot of other revenue areas. Tax revenues are way, way, way down and will be down for a while. Yeah. So just, uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if anybody takes that up, even though it's not necessarily priority to your point. Good point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, Joe, what do you think's happening in Carla too with, um, uh, you know, the, the way these, like in the case of DraftKings, Joe, they just went public two yep. weeks ago or yeah, I guess it was two weeks ago or less than two weeks ago. Now valued at around 14 or $15 billion, which is really kind of stunning. Will this benefit the big consolidated players like the DraftKings and the Patty Powers, or will there still be a viable market for entrepreneurs and attacker brands like new companies in, in gambling, or will it just slow everything down? Um, so, so some of the entrepreneurial space that I've seen is that there are deals still being done. They're being done slower and smaller. Um, and like I think, you know, we saw the XFL has gone, come and gone. Um, we've heard rumors of some other fringe leagues or smaller niche leagues that are really going to struggle. You know, we don't know what's going to happen with minor league baseball. I, I think it's right. going to be unfortunately similar with companies that were living paycheck to paycheck or looking for their next round of funding. I think it's, it may still be there. I think it's going to take a lot longer and it's going to be a lot less money. And frankly, if you're on the investment side, you probably have more places to pick from and better deals to, to take advantage of than you would have maybe before March 12th, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and Carla, what did, you mentioned the Olympics before. What, what about the effect on the USOPC and the, and the NGBs un, under them? I mean, is this, th this seems like it'll be a pretty devastating effect in the near term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely a fair assessment. Um, in terms of them financially, uh, momentum-wise. Yeah, I mean, could we could we see conceivably more bankruptcies among the NGBs like USA Gymnastics? This is uh, a fun and uplifting. Sorry, USA Swimming. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, this is a good question, Joe, because it's yeah. bottom line is all these organizations have to be fine. They they need revenue, yeah. and there's no revenue right now. So at a certain point, you, you're not a going concern. We're seeing this play out in retail, and I don't want to be negative, but this is going to impact more in the sports business, I think, where we thought about, let's say, a month ago as we work through this. And it seems to me, with the fairly weak financial states of a lot of these NGBs, I, I guess I want to get Carla's opinion. Is a Chapter 11, as a, as a legal option, something that you think more of them could consider at a certain point to reorganize? I guess that's possible, but I'm not in a position to comment on what their income streams or their financial position is. I mean, it is possible. It's, it's not outside the realm of possibility, but I don't know how likely that is. Yeah. And will they get rescued by other funds so, before doing that? So we've got a couple minutes. Um, I'm going to take the other side, Tom, and say... yeah. Um, I, I think change is being accelerated. I think opportunity, especially in the digital space, which you're so familiar with, is being pushed to the forefront. Fan engagement is going to change, and I think it's going to change for the better. And there are new, there are going to be some new job opportunities and streams for people to get involved who are entrepreneurial that did not exist before March 12th. One of the biggest ones is everything around let's call it cleanliness. We've already yeah. seen, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago about a director of fan, um, kind of fan approval. Fan safety. Every team is now hiring. They're all going out and hiring a cleanliness person who may come from the healthcare field. 
Um, we've seen all the adaptation of iRacing, NBA 2K being accelerated, NHL now getting into the space. Um, and, and by the way, and then you've seen things in golf where, you know, you sat there and watched the replay of the Masters with Phil Mickelson talking about what's going on and on a second screen getting a lesson of what it's like to hit a ball into Amen Corner. So um, I think all those things are going to be really interesting for, for people who are coming into the space who may have looked at something and said, and, eh, you know, this is kind of interesting. If we can sponsor it, we'll use it. Now it's going to become part of the lexicon. And I think those opportunities are going to grow. And for anyone coming into a business, that's where I would look, not to kind of the way it used to be before March 12th. Yeah, I, I think, think I'm point. in agreement with, with Joe. I mean, from my perspective, I see so many opportunities to innovate. And like I was reading something very recently about how Marriott has completely changed its cleaning protocols and sterilization protocols. That requires talent and innovation. I can see that being translated to the stadium. Um, there, even if you bring it downstream, the way that we're all consuming boutique fitness classes these days, mm -hmm. we're doing it through streaming, not through being on, uh, being in a room with others, like at a spin class or something like that. We're getting instruction uh, virtually and it's making people innovate and it's also creating new and interesting platforms. Hey, Tom, yeah. I'm going to give you a phrase, uh, and it'll be my yeah. last part. Um, there's a young man named Yao Williams who works at Athletes First Partners, who I was talking to the other day, and he was actually one of the first people that was involved in what used to be the Ivy Sports Symposium. And he had a great um, saying the other day. He said, what this going, is going to do is accelerate the inevitable. And what he meant by that is we've talked about more digital engagement, a different way to engage, uh, a different way to view view a game, a different way to attend, and all those things that you know we've talked about. About wouldn't it be great if there was a better second screen experience or a new way to watch? Are now being pushed yeah. along fast, and the people who are were on that curve maybe can ride it a lot faster and figure out how to help things get uh, turned around. Oh, hundred percent. I'm by the way, don't get me wrong. I'm all in on the acceleration of digital disruption. This has been a big theme, Joe. We've seen that in some of the conferences recently, some of the conversations we've been in. That is happening for sure. Um, the only concern I have um, is for what I'd call the, the, some of the smaller properties that are just gonna be yes. struggling financially for a while. The big, the big players will be fine. The tech companies will be fine. We're already seeing an enormous amount of wealth creation for, for the FANG crowd. You guys see that. Um, the rich are getting richer there and it will, this will usher in more rapid adoption of new experimental technologies, which is a big thing like Rich Greenfield, Jeff, uh, 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 excuse me, I was going to say Jeff Greenfield, Rich Greenfield, Joe was talking about raising the question in his latest research about the effects of COVID is, will fanless game, games sustain viewer interest on television? It's an interesting thought. I've been thinking about that a lot in the last week. I'm like, okay, the thought of watching an English premier game, premier league game right now without the ambient sound of the crowd chanting, stuff like that, is, it is weird. So there are new, as you know, uh, there are technologies being considered right now to augment what may be crowdless games where the loss of the audio soundtrack 
would probably be more devastating, particularly for casual fans. I mean, hardcore fans are going to watch baseball games and basketball games always. But it's that casual fan base that right now is very precious that everybody's worried about. And I think there will be a ton of new tech opportunities in the area, and everybody's going to want to experiment. You know, and it's funny. One of the other things, and you saw it when the WWE did their two live events, where the the guys and the women in the ring actually turned expecting a response from a crowd and then realized in the middle of it that the crowd wasn't there and they were kind of caught in this moment. I think you're going to see that as sports come back where somebody scores and LeBron James turns to the crowd and realizes that there's nobody there. So, right. Right. um, Uh, Maybe the the cutouts. Yeah. Maybe the cutouts. Yeah. All right. You want to wrap it up, Joe? Yeah. So um, Carla, any parting thoughts, especially as you know, we've got a lot of students and young people and now probably more than ever, people in transition from careers or changes in careers um, from, from where you sit in the, you know, talking to the legal, the insurance, even the medical field, what, what are you telling people, young people right now? Uh, I'm telling them, you know, to piggyback on what you said earlier, I'm, I'm more positive uh, than I expected myself to be. I've been telling them literally keep your head up and keep your head in the game. I mean, there are, obstacles and sometimes they present opportunities and take care of your health of course make sure that you uh, adhere to social distancing and uh, uh, taking care of your health and your family's health but this is going to pass and there's going to be a new and different landscape and it's going to be okay there you go. Tom? I think we should end. Well, I would echo that. Yeah. I and mean, I think there's going to be uh, some really interesting changes that will, some will come quick, some will be a little bit slower, but it will be a different business. But as I always tell people, particularly younger people, with change, with disruption comes opportunity. To Carla's point, you really do have to stay, keep your head in the game and pay attention to all those changes and think through what it really means in terms of just business strategy, business opportunities, career opportunities, et cetera. Um, it's, it's a tif- really difficult time right now, but I would, I agree with Carla that I think over time there'll be lots of new opportunities and really interesting ones at that. I mean, this industry is going to be changed to your point, Joe, whether people want it to be changed or not. And that change is going to come from below, from younger people. It's not going to come from the incumbent executives. I'm, you know, that's, we've learned that. So they, the industry needs to be pressured from younger people in a positive way, coupled with um, kind of smart thinking about where this business can ultimately go. Great. Cool. Well, um, once again, Carla Barriali joining us from uh, the West Coast, Tom and I on the East Coast for the first COVID edition of the CUSP show. Here we are on Cinco de Mayo. Uh, Thanks always. You know, I didn't think we'd be doing something on NIL and force majeure, but you know, we're in uncharted waters and this was very informational and hopefully beneficial for a lot of our listeners. Yeah. Thank you, Carla. We really appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. Thank you, gentlemen. And once again, this was the CUSP show, the Columbia University sports podcast for Carla Variali. Tom Richardson, I'm Joe Favorito. Thanks for listening and we'll join you down the road.